While Paul is back in Antioch, regrouping and repacking for missionary journey number three, back in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila are helping the gospel advance in a big way in their own way. A young Old Testament scholar comes from Alexandria, Egypt. His name is Apollos. Like Stephen earlier in the book of Acts, this man is a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He's also tender-hearted. He's looking for the stomper, the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament. He's also heard about the baptism of John the baptizer, John proclaiming, repent and prepare your hearts for the coming king. Apollos takes this seriously. He comes to Ephesus, proclaiming to whomever would listen, prepare for the coming Messiah. Apollos crosses paths with Priscilla and Aquila. They took this young preacher aside and explained the way more accurately. We can almost imagine what they said. Apollos, haven't you heard? Messiah did come. He was born in Bethlehem, as the prophets predicted. He grew up a Nazarene. He identified himself as the one who came to set free the captives, bind up the broken, and proclaim the year of God's favor from Isaiah. He went about for three years, doing amazing works. Then, as Isaiah 53 said, he laid down his life as God's suffering servant, the one who would bear our iniquities. The events of his crucifixion matched up with Isaiah 53 perfectly. Then Apollos, he was raised from the dead after three days. As the psalmist said, God would not let his Holy One undergo decay. He brought the new covenant of Jeremiah. God is moved inside those who believe in him through the Holy Spirit. When Apollos heard these words, he goes all in on Jesus and believes, and he's baptized. I imagine Priscilla and Aquila also had something to do with sending him to Corinth. He built up that sailor town ragtag church, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in Corinth. We'll meet him again in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Apollos gets my vote for the one New Testament letter that's anonymous, Hebrews. Back to Paul in Antioch of Syria. Paul leaves on missionary journey number three. This one's going to last over three years his longest mission. He travels overland through Galatia. You gotta believe he revisited those four churches he planted on his first missionary journey. Finally, he comes to Ephesus. Here he finds some men, 12 of them. Luke calls them disciples. Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They give him a dull look. We don't know what you're talking about. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Paul then asks, into what name were you baptized? Like Apollos, they've been baptized with John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, getting ready for the coming Messiah. Like Priscilla and Aquila did to Apollos, Paul does to these 12 men. He preaches Jesus as the Messiah, and they go all in on Jesus. Paul then lays hands on them and prays for them, and the Holy Spirit comes his arrival is vividly evident to these men. They speak with tongues and begin proclaiming or prophesying. I want to make two quick comments here. First about Priscilla and Aquila. When they're first introduced to us in Corinth on the second missionary journey, the order is Aquila and Priscilla. That would be the normal order, the guy and then the lady. But the rest of the times they're mentioned, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Many who study this conclude the only reason Luke put her name first is Priscilla was the more prominent one. We've already read in the Galatian letter, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. 
Here's one place where the writer Luke seems to be bolstering that idea. There's nothing wrong with Aquila, a believer, being a bit more in the shadows than his wife. That's the way she was wired and gifted. We'll get much more to that wiring and gifting in our next episode, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The other thing I want to look at is what happens when people believe. In Acts, two things almost always happened after someone went all in on Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit and they were baptized in water. The thing that's interesting is they don't always come in the same order. Sometimes when people believe, the Holy Spirit came and normally came in obvious ways with obvious indicators. Other times, they were baptized first and the Holy Spirit came after that. Another thing that happens is sometimes the Holy Spirit only came after someone came and laid hands on the new believers. That happened in Acts chapter 8 after Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans. And that also happens here in Ephesus, Paul laying hands on these disciples of John the Baptizer. Another observation is, often when people received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in languages or tongues. This brings up two questions as we go forward in the New Testament. The first is, if you go all in on Jesus, do you have to have someone lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit, the Helper? The answer to this is no. Even in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit didn't always come after someone laid hands on you. Remember Cornelius, Acts chapter 10 and 11? He and his household believe, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only did Peter not lay hands on them and pray for them, he is actually quite shocked when the Holy Spirit falls on them when they believe. Sometimes there's hands laid on, and sometimes not. I think I may have an idea why God did it this way early in Acts, but I'm going to let you wrestle with that yourself. The second question is, when the Holy Spirit, the Helper, moves inside as Jesus promised, should there be an indication of that through the evidence of tongues? Once again, the answer to that from Paul's own mouth is no. We'll see in the next episode, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he asks this question, do all of you speak in tongues? His answer is, no, you don't. As we move forward in the letters, I think we can demonstrate that an external evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit was a bit more necessary in the book of Acts and at the foundation of the church than it is today. Back to our story, Paul settles in to Ephesus. For three months, he meets in the synagogue, as was his custom. There he tries to persuade the locals to follow Jesus as Messiah and Lord. He convinces some, but others become more hardened. When Paul turns up the heat of the gospel, some wax-like hearts melt away and embrace Jesus, and some hearts who are more clay-like harden further still. So Paul decides, why keep spitting into the wind? He stops meeting in the synagogue and finds another location called the School of Tyrannus. Paul turns it into a gospel training school for two years. We're given this statement in Acts 19. And all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks. That's quite a statement. Ephesus was a magnet city for festivals and celebrations. We believe we know what Luke meant by that statement, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks. One of those prominent cities in Asia, Colossae, was clearly reached with the gospel. There's a church there Paul never visited, but will write a letter to, the book of Colossians. 
And there are six other churches who appear in the New Testament by name from this area of Asia around Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the six churches along with Ephesus that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They're actually the primary recipients of that book. Many scholars believe those churches were all planted as fruit of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. If that's true, Paul on this third missionary journey, their teaching in the school of Tyrannus, turned the church in Ephesus into a church-planting machine. According to Luke, Paul combined his teaching there with extraordinary powers. Paul couldn't figure it out, but his hankies and aprons kept disappearing. People were taking them, because with these hankies in hand, evil spirits were being evicted and diseases eradicated in the ones holding them. Luke also tells us that people started using some of Paul's signature lines seeking to have similar powers. A Jewish chief priest is named Siva. He has seven sons. They're going around as would-be exorcists of demons. We're told they came to a demon-possessed man. They said, I order you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches come out. The demon in the man replies, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul. But who are you? The possessed man then pounced on these seven Jewish would-be exorcists, subdued them, and beat them to a pulp. Word of this got out, and fear and respect for Jesus exploded in Ephesus. Luke tells us that's not all that happened in Ephesus. Those who believed began confessing their pagan practices, one of which was magic. New believers brought their magic incantation books to the public square. There, they lit them on fire. Now, books, handwritten, were extremely valuable. Luke gives the price of one bonfire at 50,000 pieces of silver. Some listening to this might think, that's disgusting. Typical Christians, narrow-minded book burners. The book of Proverbs says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything you do. In Hebrew, heart is not just the center of our emotions, it's the center of our thinking. I'm a big Craigslist fan. I like to pick up bargains, especially in my hobby of working with wood. Not long ago, I ran across a guy selling his porn collection. No kidding. He was just overt about it, giving his name and phone number. Ew. So I ask you, what would you do if you were that guy and you became a follower of Jesus? Would you put your collection on Craigslist or in the burn barrel? That was the attitude of these folks in Ephesus toward their magic books. People were also turning away from idols. If you read about Ephesus in Wikipedia, it was known for one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, also called Diana. Acts tells us the locals believe she fell out of heaven. Some think it was actually just a meteorite. Whatever it was, it drew people from all over the Mediterranean, and silversmiths made a bundle out of making replica trinkets of Diana or Artemis. But while Paul was there during his three years, silversmith business went into a recession. The silversmiths got together and said, hey, we've got to take care of our business. So they stir up the crowd. They remind them, this is the city of Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. Luke describes a mob forming, and for two hours, them screaming, Great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians. 
Can you imagine that? That would be three quarters of a football game with everyone in the stands shouting the same sentence over and over again. Finally, the town clerk settles them down. A great example of good public leadership. I hope we appreciate anyone in our communities that serves in that way. At this point, Paul heads to Macedonia. We just get one verse that he went through Macedonia and gave them much encouragement. Macedonia would be Philippi, Thessalonica, etc. We're told Paul then goes to Greece for three months. No cities are named. Paul was going to get on a ship and sail back to Syria, then travel on to Jerusalem. But the Jews laid a trap, so Saul goes back north on foot through Macedonia. We're told at this point he is accompanied by seven men, including Timothy, who will become his right-hand man, actually more like his only son. Luke also writes that he is with them. When they get to Philippi, Paul sends the rest of the men ahead to Troas, and he and Luke linger in Philippi, likely with those new believers for the Passover holiday. Paul then goes on to Troas. He spends about a week there. On the evening of the first day of the week, the believers there assemble. They eat together, a church potluck maybe. Then Paul begins to preach. He's leaving the next day and he's got a lot to say. We get our only New Testament view of what it was like for a kid to sit in church in biblical times. This young man named Eutychus is sitting in the windowsill on the third floor. Paul goes on and on, and this poor guy falls asleep in the sermon and falls out of the window. Three floors. Everyone rushes outside. Paul lays down on him and embraces him, then gets up, saying, Don't be troubled. He's still alive. And Eutychus gets up for a resurrection. They have a late night snack. Then Paul preaches until sunrise. I remind my students to remember this all-nighter sermon the next time they think their pastor is getting a bit long-winded. Paul wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. He's got to sail right by Ephesus. He desperately wants to see them, but he knows if he stops, he'll be tempted to stay. So he sails past to the next stop, Miletus, and calls for the elders of the Ephesian church. The conversation he has with these Ephesian elders the ones he'd spent three years with, are some of the most tender words Paul ever gives. He tells them he's heading to Jerusalem, and he knows chains and suffering await. He also knows he'll never see their faces again. He urges them to shepherd the flock of God well, the flock that was purchased with Jesus' precious blood. He then warns them of what's coming for them, savage wolves who will come in. Savage wolves always hang around sheep. He warns them to be careful about perverse men from among them, false shepherds wanting to draw some of these sheep away to themselves. He urges them to be alert. Paul blesses these men and entrusting them to God and the word of his grace. Luke records him saying, In my conscience before God, I didn't covet anything you had or take advantage of you. Did I? You don't feel in any way used or taken advantage of, right? That's a man trying to finish well. Then Paul and these men hit their knees together and pray. The tears begin to flow. Off their knees, these men fall into Paul's arms in heaving sobs. That doesn't sound much like the zealous theologian who wrote the angry letter to the churches in Galatia, does it? Paul then lands northwest of Jerusalem in Tyre. 
He spends seven days there while the car goes unloading. Guess what he's doing? Looking for believers to build. This guy just never stops. Believers there warn him not to go to Jerusalem. Luke reports two more stop-offs at ports. In both, people warn him of what awaits in Jerusalem. In one of these ports, a prophet even comes up to Paul with a belt and binds him for a visual aid. The people beg him to reconsider his plans. Paul replies, Ah, people, you're breaking my heart. I'm willing to be bound and even die for the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. This ends Paul's third and longest missionary journey. Bound and die for the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Paul's going to come razor close. We'll look at that in a future episode. But before we do, we want to take a look at a couple of letters Paul wrote during his three years in Ephesus. Two to the church in Corinth and one more. Well, I'm just going to leave you hanging on that one. We'll look at this first letter to his beloved yet undisciplined believers, Corinth, in our next word picture.